Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Stocks for beginners. Phil Muscatello and Finpods are authorized reps of Money Sherpa. The information in this podcast is general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal situation. Uh, what is the kind of dynamics of those countries? Are, are, they, are they trade partners with developed markets or are they trade adversaries? Are they the companies that are listed there, you know, culturally, do they want to pay dividends or do they want to plow it right back into growth? Are there regional advantages? Are there resources, you know, Canadian mining, Australian mining, things like this that tend to favor certain sectors based on the country where they're listing. I mean, all of this are factors to consider. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Why do investors generally look for opportunities close to home and suffer from home court bias? Are we missing opportunities because we're familiar with the culture and the currency, or are we just taking the monetary path of least resistance? Joining me today to consider the wider world is Simon Erickson from Seven Investing. Hello, Simon. Hey, Phil. Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, thank you very much for coming back. We were just talking off air about how it's great to have the analytical heavyweights like yourselves back on. I'm a big fan of yours. I'm a big fan of your podcast. I'm a big fan of long-term investing. So I really appreciate being here again. Simon Erickson is the founder and CEO of Seven Investing. He's one of the stock market's most forward-looking investors. You wrote this, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, my mother. My mother wrote it about me. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. You can read this part yourself. But anyway, he's one of the stock market's most forward-looking investors, focusing on identifying disruptive innovation and finding developing trends before others may even be aware of them. So before we turn to international markets, let's have a look at the macroeconomic environment. Interest rates are rising, well, plateauing perhaps, you were saying before we went on air, and threats of recession are looming or receding, depending on your point of view. Do you believe that fundamentals of most businesses are sound and attractive? I think generally that's a fair statement to make, Phil. You know, if we have certainly seen interest rate environments increasing in the past and good companies find ways to adapt to those no matter what the macro is out there. But I do want to throw out the caveat that that's not always going to be the case. Um, any companies that are not yet profitable are going to have to find ways to raise capital. You know, it's going to be a more difficult decision now. Do you want to take out interest rates that are higher if it's bank debt? Do you want to issue equity? And do a raise when your when your stock price is down, and um, this is kind of the science of investing that you know we need to pay attention to the financial statements that companies had. We need to look at the balance sheet, cash flow statements, income statement to figure out you know if companies do need to raise money because it's not just go go growth mode out there anymore. It's going to be a more challenging decision of how to do so. That's one of you say that's one of the basics or one of the um, uh, the science of valuing companies that the cost of expansion, which is usually what with debt or equity, uh, they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place at the moment. Is that the case? It's value for an investor will accrue when a company makes more money off of a project than it costs them to borrow for it, right? We want to look at it for companies that are getting good return because they're deploying it to good projects and they make money for for the business that they share with us as investors. And for years, that was simple. You know, when money was free or very, very cheap, 
you could load up your balance sheet with debt at you know zero or one percent, certainly less than five percent for a company to borrow, and then they could deploy it into projects that would easily surpass that threshold. It's not that way so much anymore. If you look at the interest rates that they're borrowing at right now, you might have to pull off the accelerator. And we've certainly seen that in the tech industry, that a lot of companies are just pulling projects because they don't think they're going to beat that threshold. They think that the costs of borrowing would exceed the potential rewards, especially in kind of a recession or the macro doing its thing right now. A lot of those projects that were no-brainers for the last 10 years of the bull market are suddenly more difficult decisions right now. Markets also seem to be moving in tandem with the largest weighted stocks like Google, Meta, Microsoft, and Apple. Is that what where you're looking for further growth in the tech sector? And I just wanted to point out as well that about a lot of these companies are, well, Meta, for example, is laying off a lot of people as, as well. And is that where their growth's coming from? The internet and tech stocks are an interesting sector, Phil. For years, everything was. Well, I mean, just, let's you know, let's face it; they're, um, they, mean, they, they they constitute so much of the S and P five hundred, and that um, and I think the rest of the S and P five hundred has only moved by about one percent this year, whereas um, most of the gains have been driven by those larger tech stocks. The tech heavyweights are the S and P, right? Data is the new oil, and it's not the GEs and the IBMs anymore. It's the companies like the Apples and the Metas that are out there multi-trillion dollar valuations for these companies now. And it, and it used to be just built upon advertising, right? Remember a couple of years ago, everything was just digital advertising. Whoever had the platforms, they were you know, taking a cut of everything that was going on out there. And then we, we transitioned into software as a service where to have a more sustainable business that didn't follow the rise and the fall of, uh, of the economy and the business cycle, there was you could lock in enterprise customers with a, with a monthly or an annual uh, fee you know, for, for, for seats or for usage or whatever it might be. And I think that right now, when you're looking at the tech sector, we, we've certainly transitioned to that. And certainly a lot of those relationships are still in place. But it's kind of, you know, who is mission critical that these companies are needing? If you look at a company like a ServiceNow, ServiceNow has no worries. They are still going to be very, very deeply embedded in the enterprise. Microsoft is going to be very, very embedded in the enterprise. And as you're seeing things, we're having these new conversations about things like AI and GPT and large language models. All of that is the next evolution of the tech sector, which is going through another quantum leap, right? Just like advertising was, just like software as a service and cloud was. Now AI is the is two letters that everybody wants to talk about. And so the important question is going to be, how embedded are you? How important are you? And are you free cash flow positive? Those are the types of companies in the tech sector that are the most interesting to invest in, because everything else is a little bit of a question mark on how risky it's going to be. So how do you see AI driving future returns? Some companies will embrace it and really like it and are going to understand how this is a value add for their business. One, one interesting example is Duolingo. Duolingo is helping uh, people and even enterprises now learn other languages. You can learn everything from English. Uh, you can learn Swahili. You can even learn Klingon for any of the Star Trek fans out there. I mean, it's, it's kind of you know a global language leader. And it's been using and, and, applying, and um, applying AI for the entire business, the entire time the business has been in place to figure out how people learn things. You know, should you do conjugations first? Should you do nouns first? What's the lesson plan that would best suit you as well as the front end marketing of the business? And now GPT is going to be a complement for that business. I've heard a lot of people suggesting that GPT was just going to replace Duolingo. There was going to be no need for a mobile app anymore. And, and that's actually not the case at all. A company like this that understands AI, it's its very founder was a was a Carnegie Mellon uh, professor of computer science. I mean, businesses like that are going to get stronger because there's new tools that are available for them. 
There are other mm. sectors where AI might make it more challenging for them to compete, especially where labor costs are very high uh, or it's not as profitable of a business and where there are competitors that are adapting these, they, they might gain share on those businesses that, that kind of get stuck behind if they're not able to adapt quite as quickly. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, so let's move on to home court bias. And I just wanted to preface this by saying that we've I've based this interview on a recent podcast interview and your podcast as well. Tell us the name of the podcast. The Seven Investing Podcast. Easy to remember, it, Phil. <laughs> it is. It's a great podcast as well. And you take some really nice deep dives into companies and the economies. And um, you were talking to the Comgest. Is that how you pronounce it? The Comgest that's people? Right. Yeah. Yep, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who gave some great insights. Now, uh, of course, they're international investors. Um, so before we start talking this section of the podcast, what is home court bias? We, we tend to uh, take the path of least resistance in a, in a lot of ways as investors. It's, it's kind of how we're wired. Uh, Phil, I know that I believe you live down in Sydney, right? That's right. Most investors here in Australia are investing um, in the Australian Stock Exchange. Sure. Yeah. And, and you guys mm. would have certainly more of a, a more informed perspective about Australian businesses than I would being from mm. Texas, the United States. And similarly for any other international market, wherever in the world you're investing, it's just easier. You know the companies, you see them every day. There's no currency risk exposure or anything like that. Mm. But you have to take a step. That's what home court bias is. Home court bias is you have a bias for wherever your home court is, your home country. Mm. But the investing world, as global as it is now, as international as it is right now, it doesn't think about things that way. You know, Companies are, are international in nature. Uh, they don't not invest in a, in a market or the opportunity for their business internationally just because it's, it's not where they're domiciled. We need to start thinking internationally uh, because even a lot of these same business models that have worked in the United States and Australia and Europe, wherever in the developed world are starting mm-hmm. to really catch on in, in other places too. And, and I think that as investors, we should be mindful and aware of that. And I think it's worth pointing out, um, just in terms of uh, my home court and your home court, uh, in Australia, our local stock exchange is dominated by large mining companies like Rio and BHP, and um, the banks and a few consumer discretionaries and oh, one blood company, of course, they're in there as well, one high-tech biotech. Um, but the states is go as well. The United States has this situation because what is the size of the US market compared to the rest of the world? It's only like is it 40% from memory? Oh, Maybe. That sounds interesting, Phil. I'd have to double check on it. I'm not really, really yeah. sure actually off top of But there head. is a metric on that and that really there are, okay, you get some great exposure in the States to, uh, well, big tech at the moment, but then there's other sectors which you really need to go internationally to access. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because where you're raising money isn't even necessarily where you're going to do the majority of your business, right? And keep in mind that there are regional stock markets that each have their own interests, you know, their own, um, their own differences. A mm. lot of Chinese companies raised money from American investors because that's where the money was and they wanted to put money into their balance sheet. Uh, they listed directly on the NASDAQ um, and, and then went on to do international business. 
We're seeing a lot of that in other countries too. One that we talked about with the Comgest guys was Japan. A lot of Japanese companies, you know, even though they're based in Japan, even though they're listed on the Japanese exchange, are doing business in a whole bunch of different places too. As investors, we we kind of should think about things though in terms of you know what what are, what are the relative valuations of stocks from different countries? Uh, what is the kind of dynamics of those countries? Are are they are they trade partners with developed markets or are they trade adversaries? Are they the companies that are listed there? You know, culturally, do they want to pay dividends or do they want to plow it right back into growth? Are there regional advantages? Are there resources? You know, Canadian mining, Australian mining, things like this that tend to favor certain sectors based on the country where they're listing. I mean, all of this are factors to consider, but I think that the important part is that through brokerages uh, charging fewer and fewer fees, a lot of brokerages can now you can get zero cost for commissions and even for international commissions to trade on um, international exchanges, the, the fees are coming down too. It's a global market out there. We should we should recognize home court bias. I don't necessarily condone every investor, you know, investing everywhere in the world. It seems like there's a lot of risk you need to consider, but I think that we should be at least international minded because there's a lot of opportunities out there we might not be considering if we're not thinking about it that way. And um, why is Japan looking so attractive at the moment? I mean, some people look at it as being an old economy with a very old population and not quite as dynamic as the rest of the world. It is an interesting one because Japan has a lot of the equipment providers that are serving the computing industry, whether that was in the creation of semiconductor chips that are then going into the data centers, which are then being used to power the GPTs and the AI applications of the world. I mean, a lot of that, even just stuff like the packaging or, you know, the semiconductor creation, the wafers, you know, the equipment, a lot of that is kind of the picks and shovels are still coming from Japan. Japan has been a technological leader for decades now. And even though it's it's not thought of that way, you know, a lot of people thought of, of China or, or Silicon Valley as kind of being the growth stories of those, it's still being done in Japan. And so I think that Japan is kind of like this hidden enabler of the computing industry as we're going through a semiconductor renaissance. And as a whole, the, the country's stocks are not expensive. They have more attractive valuation multiples than a lot of the NASDAQ listed companies here in the United States are. And it's also, you know, when, 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 you, when you talk about kind of politically, it's a very stable economy. It is one that has got very good relationships with a lot of the Western world, does a lot of business with California-based tech companies. It's kind of an interesting one to consider. There's some smaller cap under the radar names that I learned about from the Comgest guys in a recent conversation here with them. Mm, and they've got great balance sheets in Japan, haven't they? They are so afraid of debt. Loaded with cash, right? Yes. <laughs> it's a four-letter <laughs> word, debt over there. Yeah, because I think uh, the, the experiences they had in the 80s where debt fueled a crisis for them, um, they're very gun-shy <laughs> with debt and have been for a long time. That's the case, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And they're very conservatively run. I mean, that's something you need to keep in mind too, is like a lot of these times, um, just the management structure, the way they think about capital allocation, you know, you have to have profits before you'll in invest in new ventures. That's very different, Phil, than what we saw in, uh, in Silicon Valley and in the tech industry of the United States, where it was like, go out and raise as much money to step on the accelerator as fast as you, as you quickly could. As we're kind of seeing a shift in the macro and a lot of companies are not doing that anymore, we're certainly not seeing Meta do that anymore. Uh, a lot of those Japanese companies that have been very conservative and have, have sat on cash on the balance sheet have, have paid off. And have, this is kind of an attractive time for investors who are looking to maybe dial back on the risk a little bit. So what about India? You discussed India quite a bit in the podcast. What's so interesting about India at the moment? It's one that I'm still learning a lot about, Phil. But at a higher level, there's some trends that I think that are very attractive for investors about India's 
population, right? For, for one, the government is really encouraging digital banking. They have basically done away with their highest denomination paper currency because they want to push people to invest their money into banks. Uh, they largely want to do that because they can track the money flow and, and <laughs> levy taxes where they, where they need to. But when you think about just you know what that's meant for, for digital banking and e-commerce and everything that we've seen, uh, that is certainly the beginning of a trend that could be fintech, financial technology in the Indian market. And when you see the companies like uh, the equivalents of the PayPals or the Squares or the Amazons taking root in India, there are certainly some investment opportunities from those. Uh, telecom is another big one, along with uh, with e-commerce and, and internet usage, is, uh, is cellular usage. You know, we, we've certainly seen telecom and, and 5G and a lot of companies looking to get into uh, India's, you know, billion plus population because they're going to start using smartphones more and more. And there's a telecom opportunity from that. Mm. And then retail, you know, the other, the other piece of this is a huge population embracing technology. What's the opportunity for that? You know, companies like Apple have just set up their first physical shop in India because they want to start selling iPhones there uh, in directly, you know, in physical locations. And so there's some kind of these mega trends that are, that are attractive for, uh, for tech companies or retail companies and fintech companies in the country of India right now. So you're looking at it from the outside that there's opportunities for Western companies moving into India. Is that um, the case? And that's where the uh, a lot of growth might be coming from for those companies? Amazon and Meta have certainly been interested in this. And we've seen Apple here more recently been interested in this. The relationship with the Indian government is a tricky one. Uh, they want to encourage their own um, you know, mega conglomerate, ho- homegrown heroes, if you will. There have been some stories, a telecom is one space, two American Tower was one, where they went in, they partnered with India's largest telecom companies, they built the towers you know, that were necessary and then placed all the equipment, the routers and the other things out there for cellular communication. And they, they ended up kind of get, getting hit with more taxes than they were expecting to that, that had to go to the government as they figured this out. You have to be aware of those kinds of things. But on the other hand, if you do the right homework and look for the right companies, there are incredible profits to be captured. I, I spoke with a gentleman not too long ago. He was uh, running a fund out of Singapore that was investing in the Indian market. And the average return on invested capital for the companies in his portfolio was, was north of 40%. Uh, that is phenomenal. Any company that is returning, uh, getting a 40% return on invested capital can borrow money much, much less than that and incrementally reward its shareholders. So it's a very interesting market, great, great macro trends, very profitable businesses coming up. Some tricky relationships with the government, yes, but that's that's a risk with any uh, international market that you invest in, and certainly in India is included in that as well. Mm. And But the advantages that they have as well as an incredibly young, very well-educated, highly motivated population. Absolutely. And, and I think that, Phil, to, to offer some context too in this, I've been a professional investor for about 15 years, and some of my earlier mistakes earlier in the game was I would just look at revenue growth. And I wouldn't understand, you know, what's going on behind the curtain. Uh, how are they? How are they generating profits? Are they generating profits? You know, who's the leadership? What are the decisions they're making? If I could go back and erase some of those early mistakes, I would do a little bit more homework on inter- understanding opportunities like this. Don't just go out there and invest in every company in the Indian market just because those trends are in place. But it's a good starting point. You really like to have a tailwind rather than a headwind uh, to at least start your diligence when you're looking for investment opportunities. So I just wanted to go back a sec there. You said you looked so much at revenue growth that you missed opportunities. I thought revenue growth was everything in valuing companies. 
For me, it was China, right? We saw the uh, amazing revenue growth of China companies, these small cap Chinese companies that were growing at 300% per year of the top line. You peel back the onion a little bit, you kind of see that the stance that they had on how they were using that capital probably wasn't the best for individual investors, especially from Western individual investors. I got burned on a lot of those companies, Phil. I could have looked back and uh, avoided a lot of those mistakes had I done a little bit more homework. So let's have a look at a couple of companies that uh, you like in the international space. And I believe uh, I'll just go through them now. Mercado Libre, Rocket Lab and Wolfspeed. Let's talk about those with Mercado Libre first. Yeah, Mercado Libre is is kind of uh, becoming well-known as a regional leader of e-commerce in Latin American markets, right? Argentina, Brazil, Mexico, places like this. They're familiar uh, for anyone that does business down there. If you're a small shop and you could set up your own website and try to get everyone to buy whatever you're selling there, or you could just sell it on Mercado Libre, it's much, much easier to do the latter. And so the advantage of this business, as opposed to several of its competitors, is for several decades, it's been investing in the logistics infrastructure. Two-day shipping, you know, at your door shipping as quickly as possible or for free. It's really hard to replicate that if you're a competitor. You're probably behind in the capabilities of the regional leader. And that's why Amazon became Amazon. That's why Alibaba became Alibaba. They put the money, billions of dollars of work into logistics and it's just very, very difficult for anyone to catch them. As consumers, at the end of the day, why would you why would you go somewhere else? If you're still getting the best pricing and the fastest shipping for free every year, uh, you, can, you can pull levers that you couldn't if you're, if you're trying to catch the leaders. And Mercado Libre is the leader in Latin America, a huge market that's embracing the internet more and more every single year. And this is even despite some of the economic problems we always hear about in South America. Inflation, hyperinflation, mm, you know, different mm, markets. Argentina, uh, it's what, 97% interest rates at the absolutely. moment? Absolutely. Like Political that, yeah. instability. I mean, look what's going on in Brazil right there right now. I mean, these are, you know, and you, you look at defaults on, on debt, you know, they're kind of doing a, a lending uh, segment of their business now, or they're, they're funding some of, some of their merchants, or offering credit to consumers for buyers. There's, there's certainly risks. But again, don't let that be the, don't let the risk completely scare you out of investments. Uh, Mercado Libre has got those more than, more than accounted for, right? They've got a risk uh, assessment of their credit profile. And there's currency exchange risk. But yes, of course, they've got groups that look at things like this. Um, there's political instability in the regions. But of course, they don't want to put all of their eggs in one basket of the countries they're doing business in. And I think that you know when you do have a large business that, that kind of isn't just in one country uh, that has got 100% exposure to things like whether it's Brazil or Venezuela or Argentina, you can diversify systematically away a lot of those risks. But it takes the right company you know, from years of experience to get to that level, I think. Which, which country are they homed in? What's their- Argentina is home base for them, yeah. Because on the other side of the border, I believe Chile has got a pretty good economy as well. Yeah, sure. And I believe they're in, you know, I can't remember how many markets it is now, but, but you know, the majority of South America and some of the Latin American countries as well. Great company, Mercado Libre, M-E-L-I, for anyone interested in that one. And uh, Rocket Lab. Tell us about Rocket Lab. Uh, your near neighbor down there, uh, Phil, they are based in New Zealand. And uh, kind of the, the untraditional story for building rockets, right? The, the traditional story would be you you hitch a ride with the American government who funds you to do rocket development, and they keep giving you contracts every year. And instead, you had Peter Beck, who's down there in New Zealand, a lifelong rocket scientist since he was five or six years old developing rockets, and and figured out that he could really, really had a passion for doing this. 
but he wanted to, to democratize space. He didn't want to go out and just build bigger and bigger rockets that were big, building bigger and bigger payloads. He said, what if I could get this where you'd carry a satellite that only weighed 300 kilograms out in outer space? Not, not necessarily something that was the size of, of three buses that you wanted to put out there for surveillance for the government, but something that was 300 kilograms, size of a vending machine that you could place. And if you wanted to use that for imagery, uh, say that you wanted to do global shipping and you want to know where the storms were and the weather patterns were and avoid those, you want to see something like that from satellites. If you wanted to work with the government, you could be a smaller business and not necessarily be government funded, but you could still do things for the military, for things like that. Yeah, things like this are finding their way into commercial opportunities. And if you wanted to launch satellites into space and you had no option before because there was no launch pad that was even going to give you a window for launch, uh, you can now do this through through companies like Rocket Lab. And it's interesting um, as well, too, because the lowering costs of launch through reusable rockets and the lowering costs of making satellites through the miniaturization of components has now made it, made it economical uh, to launch things in outer space, right? You can, you can do a 300 kilogram launch for $7 million. Whereas before, if you wanted to do ride share with SpaceX, with Elon, you kind of had to only launch when they had availability, which might take you 12 to 18 months. If you're a business, that's completely unacceptable if you're trying to get revenues from a space program in the next in the next month or two. And so the FCC now, the Federal Communications Commission, has got a backlog of 40,000 uh, satellite applications. You have to get spectrum, you have to get the right frequencies and things like this, but you just see this surge of, uh, of demand out there. There's around 10,000, 13,000 satellites that are, that are in orbit right now in the, in the, across the entire world. And you see a backlog of 40,000 more, four times as many, three or four times as many that are awaiting review and awaiting the granting of approval. That's really good for a launch provider like Rocket Lab, who can not only build the satellite you want and design it for you, but also get you into exactly the orbital plane of where you want to be. What sort of revenue are they generating? And where's that revenue coming from? Yeah, Phil, so uh, they just released their first quarter 2023 results, and it was uh, $55 million in total revenue. About $20 million of that is coming from launch, and then $35 million is coming from space systems. And that's kind of a change from how the, uh, the business has traditionally looked, right? It used to be, if you were a customer, you built the satellite, we'd launch it, and then we'd charge you, we'd send you the bill for the launch. Increasingly, though, Rocket Lab is designing the things like the... Um, the solar arrays to capture power for the satellites. They're designing the satellites themselves. They're doing the uh, things to get them into the right position. They're doing the communications, things like this. The space systems is, is becoming now about two thirds of the, of the total business. And then there's going to be a third group that's not really a significant part of revenue at all today, but you can kind of think about it as the software as a service component of that. If we have an analog to this being what the cloud built, uh, first there was the providers like the Amazons uh, of the world, the Googles and the Microsofts of the world that would offer the cloud computing platforms. And they'd say, hey, we can give you storage. We can give you computing. You've got the application. Those got commoditized over time. And it really got more and more interesting of who had the platform where the applications were being built. We're going to see the same thing in the space economy as it's becoming more and more economical the first part is going to be getting a satellite into outer space. The second step will be building the satellite for someone else to get into outer space. The third step will be doing the operations and actually generating revenue for this company 
month after month. That's that's why the space economy is interesting so far. Rocket Lab wants to be an end-to-end space company. It never defines itself as only a launch provider. And then Wolfspeed. Tell us about Wolfspeed. There's a movement right now for a transition in the materials that are being used for certain chips to be moved from silicon to silicon carbide. And the interesting thing about silicon carbide, it's one of these wonder materials, if we can call it that, that is, we call it a wide band gap material. It can handle very, very large voltages and very, very high temperatures. And the place where that is the most interesting is for electric vehicles. Because if you have a battery of an electric vehicle, it's producing DC direct current. You've got to convert that to AC alternating current for the motor to spin. And if you do that efficiently, as efficiently as possible, you can actually get a longer range out of the vehicle. Uh, you can maintain the same horsepower, but you can have the battery last for much longer so you don't have to stop and charge in the middle of the highway, which is not good for anybody, right? And so Wolf Speed for decades has been a provider of the materials, the silicon carbide materials. These are the second hardest known materials in the world behind diamonds. They're synthetically made, they're crystalline grown, they're very, very hard to create chips out of uh, that are used for semiconductive materials. But, but Wolf Speed does it very, very well. And electric vehicle automakers have committed $500 billion through 2030 to their next generation electric vehicle programs. It's not just Tesla that's offering these anymore. It's Jaguar, it's GM, it's every automaker in the world now wants to be competitive with, their, with the others and offer the best vehicle with the best specifications as possible. And Wolf Speed, as the top dog in this space, pun intended with the name of Wolf Speed, uh, is, is really the one that's going to offer s- security of supply and reliability of supply because that's most important if you're an automaker that's rolling out new electric vehicle programs. And where's Wolf Speed domiciled? They're based in North Carolina. Uh, they're building now three international plants. One is an expansion of the North Carolina facility, which is going to be the global leader in providing the materials. Uh, one is in upstate New York here in the United States. It's going to be the leader in providing the power conversion devices. Excuse me. And then the third is going to be in Germany. They've got a partner that's helping them fund that out there. Right there by those German luxury automakers, Phil, as they're ramping up the capacity to serve this exciting new market. You recently had a trip to MIT to research LLMs, which are large language modules. Is that correct? Large language models. Yes, exactly. Models. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So tell us about that. What did you learn there? This is GPT, right? All of this is everyone's so obsessed with chat GPT. And like, this is the science behind the scenes of what's going on is you've got now all all of AI or the majority of machine learning is based upon trying to figure out what you are saying and then giving what it deems the most accurate, relevant answer to you. And so you've got to have a large language model to build upon, which which understands the question being asked, right? You don't want to have just a hodgepodge of irrelevant answers. You want to say, okay, it understands the question I'm asking and it's giving me the answer. And so when you look at whether it's uh, Google Bard or uh, a Llama from, from Facebook or it's GPT from OpenAI, they're all trying to understand the questions and make sense of, of language, not just the English language, but any language that it's being asked in. And then what companies are going to want to do is is add another layer on top of that, right? Stocks for Beginners, your podcast, if you hired them, might say, okay, you make all all the sense of understanding what any of my listeners is asking. I want to layer on some company-specific data to make it relevant for for my employees or for my own customers. And so all of this is really interesting from MIT because this is where a lot of the research with AI is being done. There's 
the development of the large language models. You can see the parameters. You can understand the factors that are being built in. And then what's the matrix math that's being done to do the computing to, to give you answers? Um, you know, it's only a couple of pennies for every answer that's provided from chat GPT, which is free right now for people to use. But it, you think about it as you scale this up into um, hundreds of millions of users and billions of queries happening every single day, the computing for that is going to get very, very expensive. And so one part of this is what are the algorithms to control that, uh, to make sense of, of everything that's going on behind the scenes, make sure the AI is doing its job. But then there's also a hardware piece of it, which is, you know, what are the processors that are, that are going to be doing that computing and how much is it going to cost uh, for, for the businesses that are, that are using them? NVIDIA right now is one of the market's hottest stocks, not surprisingly, because the H100s and the A100s are the GPUs that are doing that processing. Phil, I would bet my house that we're going to be say, seeing a lot of microprocessor development, not only from NVIDIA, but also from smaller companies to have more efficient, less power intensive microprocessors that are going to be doing that computing for the large language models, including GPT. And what's interesting about large language models? I mean, there's always this kind of idea that, um, you know, artificial intelligence is going to take over the world and everything. But really, it's statistics, isn't it? That's all that the LLMs are working on. It's just statistically, if you string a couple of words together, what statistically is most likely to be the next words that should appear in that conversation? Yeah, it's just really interesting to understand how it works, isn't it? It's fascinating. You know, it's kind it of a, a, the humorous example was, uh, you know, the chief technology of Amazon gets up there and, you know, for, first you have to train the model. You have to you have to teach it what the most likely answer is going to be. And then the second piece is inference, which is now that you've trained it, you know, it's going to actually going to provide an answer for you. And so the funny answer was, if, if you know, you know, when you're looking for a Google search, it automatically kind of completes the text of what you're searching for. It gives you what you think you're looking for. The humorous example that Amazon gave is that he was sending text to his girlfriend every morning and the auto complete for the text always knew what he was going to say because he was only saying about five sweet things to his girlfriend every morning. It knew exactly what he was going to say. It's a creature of habit. But the same thing with large language models. It's trying to trying to figure out the context. You have to train, you know, if you're looking at a picture of a human being, is this a human because I've trained it what a human being's nose or ears or hair looks like? And then the inference piece is what you've seen from Midjourney or others, which is you can actually create pictures of people that don't even exist if you just put in text to describe them. It's trained the model with enough data and enough images that it can start generating with inference pictures of people that don't even exist. And the same thing will be true with the answers that are given to questions being asked. And eventually this is going to find its way into more sophisticated things, right? Business decisions, medical decisions, insurance decisions. We're kind of in the first chapter of a really exciting story, which is going to have some pretty important implications for investors. Autocorrect is my enema. <laughs> yes. For those of us that are producing content on a daily basis, it's a, a, a problem. Yeah. So how is Seven Investing approaching markets in 2023, you and the team? We talk about this a lot, Phil, because we do have seven advisors and we each have a different perspective on, on how to invest, right? Uh, some of our advisors are much more growth oriented. We want to go to MIT conferences and listen to the PhDs on stage while furiously you know, punching notes into our laptops and trying to make sense of them on the way home. Others on the team are furiously looking at return on invested capital and figuring out if economic moats are sustainable as technology is changing very quickly. Other advisors on the team are looking at FDA trials, clinical trials that are ongoing right now in healthcare 
and pharmaceutical companies and trying to figure out what is the likelihood of a new drug coming to market uh, for an indication that has not been met yet. And, and, and we try to put a buffet of options together. We try to label them, is this a low risk stock? Is this a very high risk stock or anywhere in between? What is the market we're interested in? What type of investor would this be good for? Because we think that investing at the end of the day, in my opinion, is a very personal thing. There's no one person that's going to know what type of investor you are any better than you are. But it's our job to go out there and do the hunt and put together some, some really highly vetted stock ideas each and every month for you to choose from and then correctly label them based on risk assessment. And then from there, we'd like to pass the torch to you as an investor to say, which of these is right for me, knowing that you know your own risk tolerance much better than we would for anyone that's an individual looking at our, at our company recommendations. So what can Seven Investing offer to customers? And there's, you've got two tiers, I think. It's two tiers that you offer as well. And um, what is the kind of investing knowledge that can be accessed? We, we have two plans. We have a starter plan and we have a premium plan. The, uh, the starter plan was a response to demand for, for people that just wanted a couple stock picks every month. And so we said, that's great. We'll give you two thoroughly vetted picks. We'll provide the reports. Uh, and then we'll kind of give some ongoing coverage of them for $17 a month. Now, the premium option is, is one that we said, you know, if you're really interested in the long-term journey, we provide seven opportunities each and every month. We write the reports, but then we give you the sneak peek at behind the scenes at the deep dive conversation with the advisors. We have a community forum where you can talk directly with the advisors. We have ongoing company updates for each one of our recommendations. And we, we just actually lowered the price on that to $299 for a year. Um, and so it breaks down to about $25 a month if you're interested in that option. But again, it's a personal journey. You can try either, either the monthly or the annual pr uh, premium plan for just a dollar. Right now, we're offering a free, uh, we call it a, fr a free trial, no risk trial for a week for $1 to co it and see what's behind the scenes. And, uh, you know, if this is fitting for you and it's interesting, stick around with us. We'd love to have you. And if it's not, you know, for a dollar, there's nothing wrong with coming and taking a look at, at everything that we have to offer. Seveninvesting.com. Simon Erickson, thank you very much for joining me again on Stocks for Beginners. Thanks very much for having me, Phil. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to Stocks for Beginners. If you enjoy listening, please take a moment to rate or review in your podcast player or tell a friend who might want to learn more about investing for their future. 